Okay, everybody. So, our gratitude journey entry for first bite for today is to our Wookiee, to our big dog Chewbacca, because today's episode was the last episode that we recorded with him sitting shotgun. It's weird to be recording this while he's sitting next to me. But Chewbacca Dawson had metastatic melanoma on the surface of his tongue and it moved everywhere. So after a year of a diagnosis, we have to let him go home. And that was a really hard decision for our family. So my gratitude entry for today is thank you, Wookie, for 10 years of loving us, for stealing the boys' cheeseburgers, for farting so big you could clear a room, for pouncing on the slightly tipsy fraternity brothers before and after a USC game caught game. And uh, it was always funny to watch him. He waited by the fence to catch them and then would run up and then bark at them and then log back up the front gate and kind of look at us like, I'm a good boy. (laughs) But to our Wookiee, you are the biggest blessing. So thank you for 10 years of loving us. It will never be enough. But there is my heartfelt, raw gratitude. Now, on to today's guest, who is amazing. And let me get all teary-eyed before we started recording to talk about it. Um, And let us reschedule like 4 billion times because we had to handle the move and do everything else. So, Amanda, with my whole heart, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're amazing. And y'all, I really hope you enjoy the conversation and stay tuned at the end for her favorite spots to donate your love money. All right. Thanks, guys. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter, too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant, who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, 
that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. This is Michelle Dawson, and I need to update my disclosure statements. So my non-financial disclosures. I actively volunteer with Feeding Matters, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, NFOSD, Dysphagia Outreach Project, DOP. I am a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents, CSAP, a past president of the South Carolina Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, SCISHA, a current Board of Trustees member with the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia, and I am a current member of ASHA, ASHA SIG-13, SCISHA, the Speech-Language Hearing Association of Virginia, SHAV, a member of the National Black Speech-Language Hearing Association in Basla, and Dysphasia Research Society, DRS. Additionally, I volunteer with ASHA as the topic chair for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2023 convention in Boston, and I hope you make it out there. My financial disclosures include receiving compensation for First Bite Podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com as well as from additional webinars and for webinars associated with Understanding Dysphagia, which is also a podcast with SpeechTherapyPD.com. And I currently receive a salary from the University of South Carolina in my work as adjunct professor and student services coordinator. And I receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, as well as compensation for the CEUs associated with it from speechtherapypd.com. So those are my current disclosure statements. Thanks, guys. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely. All right, everybody, we are kicking off August with joy. I know that this is probably hotter than Hades wherever you live. And for those of you that are still living in South Carolina, bless, because it's probably 112. Um, Watch today be a cool spell roll through, but otherwise, huzzah. Okay, anywho, we have a dynamic, amazing, brilliant, beautiful, compassionate. Also, she has survived her toddler teething mommy SLP on today. (laughs) We have none other than Amanda Pericles, MSCCC SLP currently in Charlotte by way of Boston. And she is amazing and patient as we worked through numerous tech issues in the fancy way to adulting of an office that my husband has set up for me. And he thinks I know what I'm doing, which is kind of cute because he's not here. So without further ado, Amanda, hi, thank you for your patience. (laughs) <laughs> no, thank you. Because the first time it was definitely my fault. And then the other times we were like, all right, let's reschedule. <laughs> so you are also just as patient. <laughs> I mean, uh, we are what we are. But okay, so we have 400 things to cover today. And y'all, this is, this is a very crucial conversation that has to be had that um, 
I am feeling intimately that this conversation, everybody who has ever served as a clinical supervisor or wants to serve as a clinical supervisor needs to absorb in their heart because the experiences that you have had, your personal lived experience in order to become a speech pathologist are very different than my personal lived experiences. And um, that is um, something that is not really talked about at um, predominantly white institutes, PWIs. And we have to do better. So thank you for leading by example, man. Oh, thank you. I don't do much, but I try. <laughs> I beg to differ. <laughs> but yes. Okay. So you and I knew each other from social media and then met in person at ASHA um, a minute ago. So um, can you tell everybody where they can find you on the land of the Insta? Yes. So my handle on Instagram is at the black speechy. And my email, I'm sure you can share this later, is amandaparicleslp at gmail.com. But yeah, that's where I started my Insta journey. I just started it kind of to share about grad school and my journey through grad school. And it's just been like a continuation ever since. So it's been lovely. I think I followed you since you were in grad school. So like, probably. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 Okay. So then take us from the top. How. Did you hear about becoming a speech pathologist and about this profession? Let's start at the very beginning. The very beginning when I was failing out of (laughs) pre-med. So that's literally where it started. So I was a bio major and I was pre-med. I've always, I wanted to be a pediatrician when I grew up. So my mom and my father, they were both born in Dominican Republic. My mom is a trained she went through medical school in DR and was going to be a pediatrician. Um, Unfortunately, she didn't really get to live that out. And they moved here. She didn't get to live that out here either. But I was always like, I'm going to be a pediatrician. And I was just doing very poorly. So I was one of those people that never learned how to study. Prioritizing was always really hard for me. I was like really into being social. And, you know, I lived at a home where, you know, we were very strict and religious. And, you know, I didn't really get to do as much socializing as I did freely in college. So I got there and I was just like, okay, I need to do something else. I'm failing this class. I'm about to fail this class. And my friends told me to look into the Sargent College at Boston University, which is where the SLP program is held. And I went to go speak at at the college with a financial, not a financial, uh, an academic advisor. And she basically recommended it to me. She recommended speech and OT to me. And I hadn't heard of neither of them. Um, But I began taking the courses the following year. And I took the intro class and I was like, oh, this is so cool. Uh, Because the big thing that drew me to speech was like all the different things that we could do. Obviously, they didn't even talk about like all the niche things like med SLP voice or whatever. But they were just talking about how you can work in the homes, you can work in the schools, you can work at an outpatient clinic, you can work in the hospitals. And I was like, wow, that's really, really cool. So that's what drew me in. And I was like hooked right away. It sounded very, very cool. So that's kind of what how I got introduced. I had no idea about it prior to. And I just continued taking the courses. And then eventually I switched over to speech as my major. And I made it through BU by the skin of my teeth (laughs) with a 2.82 GPA. And I graduated and I was like, okay. So that's how I figured, that's how I found out about speech. I had no idea what it was previously as 
many of people. I feel, I feel like I've heard of more people knowing about it once I got into the field. I was like, how did you guys even know about this? You know, whether it be through a family family member or them going through it personally. That was me. My littlest brother was born with a cleft lip. And then my stepmom got electrocuted. She was seven months pregnant and she was changing out, like, you know, the toggly part on the light switch. It wasn't, what is it? Neutral. It was still charged. So when she, she got like shocked. And so he was born with dysarthria because of, you know, everything that had happened, not apraxia, but dysarthria. So my Mrs. Safransky, my friend's mom, who was a ballet teacher, we took ballet together, but she was a speech pathologist. So I learned about it from Miss Fransky, who was Efi's speech pathologist. And I was like 12, 13. He didn't talk until he was like almost four. It was a sibling or a family member. And now he's like six, four and has a degree in physics from, I don't know, some college in DC. And I'm like, what do you do with that? He goes, I make things not blow up. And I'm like, awesome. That's what my husband does. That's great. I appreciate that. We need yes. those brains because that's a lot of math. I failed out of physics. so Honestly, like stats and all those things, I was like, why do I have to retake this? I had an almost perfect score on the SATs in English. I missed it by 10 points. But my math score was so low, I went to a community college and had to take like prereqs to take the basic math. <laughs> oh, so really? Like, yeah. Yes. So... There. Once I got to calculus, I was not, yeah. I liked everything beforehand, but not once I got to calculus. Mm-mm. This is bless. Yeah, so, so I understand. But, okay, so I am a lot older than you. I just turned 40, right? So, like, there's a little bit of age gap. You're sweet to not mention how old you are. Thank you. But, like, when I was in grad school, it honestly... It was challenging to get into graduate school, but the recommendation given was just apply to two or three. and. I'm anal overachiever, so I applied to five because I was worried. It was not as difficult to get into. But I say that through my personal lived experiences of coming from a middle-class white family with my grades were very high and my SAT scores and my GRE scores were very high. So I know that there was inherent what is, what is the word? I was going to say not implicit bias, but there's giftedness and privilege with my experiences, right? My, how that is different for others. Right. So I was just thinking about this before we hopped on the call, because I was taking a look at the questions and I was just thinking about something that like recurringly comes up into my mind is the knowledge of how to navigate academia and how that has always been like a sore point for me. You know, it's always been like a a point of self-consciousness, I guess you could say, because my mom just kind of had to figure her way into anything. So I went to a private school for eighth grade through high school. And that was just because my mom, her patients love her. She works as a medical assistant and they're always chatting to her. And she found out about this school that was close to our home. And she just figured, figured her way to get both me and my sister into that school, you know? And so they're We had to learn about the FAFSA and, you know, paying tuition and all of these tax documents that you need and same thing through college. And I just think about like all of my peers who happen to have parents who went to school here and have maybe multiple degrees here and just like kind of knew all of these things off the bat and like knew like 
etiquette and knew like the timelines and knew all of these things and how like I obviously made it through, but just like, I guess the anxiety, the large amounts of anxiety that came before having to take those steps was just like something that even now just like kind of, I just think about it and it kind of like, you know, activates me. It's kind of like a, I don't want to say trigger, but you know, it like activates me. And I just think about how hard that was and how like anxiety inducing that was. And I can imagine how other people who didn't even have that, like, you know, at least I had eighth through 12, you know, going to a very exclusive, I I went to basically an all white, all girls Quaker school, you know, for eighth through 12th grade. It's like the only K through 12, all girls Quakers independent school in the North America or something like that, you know, and it was just a very different experience. And also being raised super religiously, I was raised in a environment where I learned how to quote unquote, speak properly. I learned that, you know, speaking up in the pulpit and I public speaking and, you know, my parents and everybody else were always talking about speaking proper Spanish or properly, whatever, you know, and all of these things and being in an environment where I was surrounded by people who were, didn't look like me. You know, I had lots of white classmates, maybe five that were not in a class of maybe 31 girls, you know, you kind of had to learn to survive unless you wanted to feel super ostracized. So, you know, like I made my way through, but you know, there was definitely a difference. And I was just thinking about, you know, that and just that journey and that level of privilege and how it just like recurrently like comes to mind, you know, and how that can be really hard for some people. I didn't realize how many advantages I had with respect to getting into graduate school until I served as the clinic coordinator at Francis Marion University. Dr. Michelle Norman was my counterpart. Dr. Norman was my motor speech disorders professor. I think she retired from Longwood University and then Dr. Burns recruited her back. And she was like, now I'm retired, (laughs) but I still have to call her Dr. Norman. She's like, just call me Michelle. And I'm like, no, because... I love her and like we're she's on the pedestal. But I, I was creating the clinic um, handbook, right, for the program. And I was working through everything the students needed in order to start clinic rotations. And we started clinic rotations. You got to be ready to roll that first, second week of grad school, right? And I needed background checks and I needed all of the titers. Like you had to have proof that you had all of like your vaccinations. And this was 2020, 2021. So like we were deep steeped in COVID and some practicum sites were shut down if you didn't have your COVID vaccines and actually 90% of them were, but anywho, like all of these variables. And I had students that repeatedly did not have their documents together, did not have this, did not have this. And it was almost exclusively my BIPOC students. And I didn't understand why this was happening. And I was like, they're going, they won't be able to start the practicums. They won't be able to to start. And Dr. Norman set me aside and she goes, they're learning how to navigate this. You know what needs to be done. She was like, did you tell them where to go and how to do it? And I was like, no, no. And sometimes we need that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And she was like, you have to 
set them for success because most of these young ladies, because it was all the, the cohort was all young ladies at the time. She was like, they, they need support and scaffolding here. And once I created a, a tool, another document and like laid out like where to go and how to do instant, all of them like were thriving, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And I'm not saying that that was indicative of all of the BIPOC students in the class, but a, a lot of them just because they didn't have their parents and loved ones didn't have those experiences to help guide and mentor. And it really challenged how I, it challenged me to grow, to help mentor colleagues. And, but did you consider this? Have you, have you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that you didn't know what you didn't know. And at the same time, they don't know what they don't know. So it's like, no one knows anything at that point. And it's like, yes, you have to ask, but if you don't know that you don't know, what are you going to do? Like you think that all of your affairs are in order. And I was just thinking like me as someone who I consider myself to be neurodivergent and I benefit extremely like from multimodal, like laid out very specific instructions. And, you know, even just in grad school, like I've always been terrible at really long, like broad assignment topics or just like do whatever you want, but it has to be this, you know, those always stress me out so much. And one time I I went to my professor in grad school and I was like, I need you to tell me exactly explicitly what you want. And she just kind of like laughed at me. And it was very hard because I was like, I have no idea what you're expecting from me. And sometimes it's just a matter of, like you said, like laying it out or providing an example or directing them to resources or just giving them those, you know, that bullet point list of where they can find whatever, just so that they feel like they're being supported in all the different ways and that they can succeed. Because it was literally just me taking a glimpse at my classmates' assignments like oh you made it look like this okay cool and I now I knew what I was doing you know and it was like it wasn't me just like explicitly copying what they were doing but like hey what does yours look like oh okay that's all she wants great and then me being able to feel confident in moving forward you know it's just those little things that can make such a huge difference like yeah it's it's strategies and support and scaffolding Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for sure Uh, okay so Can you share with those that don't know your personal journey? And I feel like, I mean, I do, but like, can you share with us, what was it like for you to go from undergrad to grad? I did not know that speech was such a competitive field, Um, (laughs) nor did I. Sometimes, and I'm just laughing because like, God, we can be mean humans. Yes, nor did I realize, I think off the bat, like when I entered the major that to do the things that we would need a master's degree. So I realized that kind of towards the end or somewhat in the middle. And like, as I mentioned, my GPA was not great and I was struggling a lot academically to be able to prioritize and initiate and kind of get my affairs in order. It got better as I went through college, but towards the end, you know, I was getting the academic advisor saying, well, you know, your grades may not be great or may not be good enough to get accepted into grad school. You may want to think about you know, other options in terms of maybe working or retaking some courses and whatnot. 
And towards the end, you know, BU, where I went to undergrad, has a five-year program. So lots of my classmates were, you know, applying to be in that. And we would be doing assignments. And they were talking about how, you know, they had to get all these recommendation letters and all these things. And so I was like, okay, this is not happening for me. Because they were like, yeah, you know, like I have a 3.8, but, you know, and this professor, blah, 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 blah. And so I was just, you know, this is not going to happen for me. So at the end of undergrad, I applied to be an SLPA, which is really, really easy in Massachusetts. So I got my SLPA license and I started working almost immediately in a, like a, a little private practice that was close by. So I did that for about nine months and then I switched over to uh, working in early intervention. And our catchment area was very, very high <laughs> DCF referrals, Department of Children and Families, lots of bilingual families and homes. So lots of no-shows, lots of, you know, cancellations, um, lots of trips to Target (laughs) where I got cancellations. And so I did that. Yes. (laughs) So I did that for about four years. Halfway through, I was like, okay, of course, I got my mom like in my ear, like, so when are you going to go back to school? If you stop, if you stop, you know, even before I didn't go to grad school, she was like, if you stop, it's going to be really hard to go back. And so kind of halfway through, I was like, okay, let me think about what my options are for going back. And so I started retaking courses kind of one at a time, one or two at a time. So I started taking one at a local community college, not a community college, at a local state college, maybe like 40 minutes away. So I would go to work and then, you know, whatever, two days a week, I would go to the school or the one day a week. I don't remember what it was. And then the next semester, I took two courses following semester, I took one course. So I had to retake four courses total. They were all the ones that I got seasoned. So I think it was like audiology, natural, I mean, yeah, language acquisition, phonetics, and one more. I forget what it was. Maybe speech uh-huh. science or something. Phonetics was, that was like my hardest class. Yeah. <laughs> that one I took online. So it wasn't as bad because it was kind of like asynchronous. But yeah, so I retook four courses. So there's that, you know, financial and time commitment that a lot of people don't have. Luckily, you know, my partner was super, super supportive. He was, he's always been super supportive of me. So I would do that after work, come back. Then came, okay, my courses are done. Now I have to like find all my transcripts and get all these things in order. So that's like, you know, knowing to keep all those numbers and ID numbers handy, looking those things up. And then I started with my personal statement. So as you mentioned, I I think I applied to like five schools. And I think there was three up, no, four up north where I was. And then one that was like an online school. I think it was Nova. I was planning because I went to a PWI because I didn't really do so well. I was really, really gunning to make my grad school experience a super successful one. And like, I wanted to prove myself wrong. I wanted to like do way better, but I also wanted a different experience. So I was looking for like HBCUs. I was looking for people that took like you know, a holistic approach to applications because I took my GREs, but like I basically procrastinated and didn't study, but I did fine. Like I got an average score and, but I didn't want to retake them. I took them like my last year of undergrad and I did not want to retake them because I was approaching that five-year mark. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I did average. I did fine. Like, I don't want to retake these. So I was really gunning to get in this first round, but my husband had just gotten a new job up North and we had to stay up North. And I was like, so you're telling me I have to apply to all these schools up here. That was like BU, Emerson, MGH. And like I, nearby was like URI. And then I was like, okay, let me do an online or a couple online. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so bad. And so, <laughs> so I did my essay. My essay was like so stress- stressful. I was like crying. I hate writing, like creative writing. English was always my worst class. That was like always my worst. So I was super, super nervous about it. But I applied to those five and I got into two of the five. And I was like, okay, I guess we're starting grad school. So in between was lots of obviously stress, but you know, I worked as an SLPA for basically four years slash developmental specialist and then retook four courses and then applied to schools. And that's kind of the in-between and how I got there. So lots of resume stuff and retaking of courses. You said something very powerful in the holistic approach. A lot of people, unless you're in academia or you're currently going through the application process to graduate school, may not be aware of there's there's starting to be a turn in academia away from um, mandatory GRE scores. And I have to think that this is a positive outgrowth of COVID as well as the awakening and the changes brought out of 2020, starting with George Floyd and and that movement. It's that universities, including PWIs or start predominantly white institutes, if you're not familiar with that acronym, um, they're starting to recognize that there are initial racial barriers even getting into these colleges based upon the SAT scores and GRE scores. And what is the other one? ACT scores? I don't. And so a lot of these universities are starting to say, hey, and I know that at FMU, we were part of that conversation. Like, what are we going to do with our specific scores? So what we did was as a faculty, we voted to just accept them as a indicator of how does the student do with like against a clock thinking like long term for like the praxis exam, but it didn't have merit on their application process, which was huge. It was, let's look at how did these students do with in between when they had time off between graduate school or undergrad and their application, what did they do with their time? Did they have real life experiences And what you talked about, that time as an SLPA, that is invaluable. That is, you're going to come into grad school with more clinical exposure experience and real life application than a lot of your classmates. But that's something. So if you're listening and you're on faculty, we need that exposure and experience and paper doesn't always capture how our colleagues will be successful, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And these tests, back to your point about the tests, like I remember taking the SAT, which I did average on as well, but also I didn't really study. And my mom went again, my mom's the go-getter. Like she just figures things out, right? Um, And she found this like free course that she told me and my friend about. So both my friend and I were one of the only couple of black students in my high school. And, you know, we both had some financial, you know, needs. And so we went to go take this free course that was being held for SAT prep at this local, you know, church. 
And it takes things like that, right? But then once we got there, we were basically teaching the the course to the other peers in the course. And so it's like, what, you know, what real applicable beneficial resources are there for people, you know, where, you know, yes, it was a free course for me, but if I was one of the more knowledgeable students in the class and I'm teaching other students, like what really am I learning or enhancing, you know, if that was the experience. Whereas if I had gone to a formal paid SAT prep course where they teach me how to test take specifically for the SAT, you know, that maybe my peers got to do, I wonder how that would have differed in my performance, you know. But like you said, I feel like there's such a nuance because of course, you know, paper can't tell you everything, right? But neither can an essay and neither can an interview. And some people don't do well in interviews and some people aren't great writers. So it's like, what can we do it's really hard to think about what we can do to really maximize our application process to serve the strengths of people that are applying to school and, you know, maybe the obstacles that they're facing, you know, whether it be, you know, I'm not a great writer or my resume isn't that packed or, you know, my grades weren't that good. Like, what are all the different ways we can, I don't know, help that process so that we're getting a really great round of people who are really, really dedicated to this, but just, you know, it just doesn't show yes. in the application. I don't have an answer. Yeah, I, me either. Yeah, but I mean, like, but just holding the conversation and saying, hey, this is what we're seeing. I don't know. I have seen change and I've seen growth. I am optimistic that there will be changes big picture, but I mean, I just... I'm always optimistic unless I'm not. And then I'm murder mad. So like, I mean, we go between the two. (laughs) I usually lean towards the pessimistic side. (laughs) Unless it's for other people. For other people, I'm greatly optimistic. For myself, not so much. (laughs) Until I'm not. And then when I'm not, it's like, oh. And the boys are like, mom's murder mad. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Currently, it's at all the appliances in the new house. But, you know, like, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. Okay, also on that note, Squirrel, I'm, as I'm sitting here playing because I'm stimming, huh, neurodivergent, I found all of my hair ties when I moved. Couldn't find them at the old house, but found all, and like I play with them. And it's just, my husband was like, how do you have so many? I was like, I don't know. But in the process of moving, I found all of my hair ties. I'm very happy for you. I'm still looking for my shampoo. <laughs> since our move my friend had to give me some samples I was like I don't know where my, it was brand new too almost I can't find it eventually oh that's great that we didn't lose the hamster so like as long as we didn't lose the hamster like that would be I'm, bad yes that's 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 what we have um, we inherited a couple of bunny rabbits which we found rescue homes for and a cat there's a cat the people left behind a cat I'm like we could just yeah, I, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm going to call him Toby. Petty I, too. I have a plan to adopt this outside cat. That's what my father-in-law has done with the cat that they have outside their house. He just feeds it every day now. <laughs> New pet. <laughs> so our little interview. Okay. So you made it into grad school. Can you talk to us about what your experiences were and like barriers in, internally and how we can overcome these. I know we had questions assigned for this, but like we've just- Yes, like, we're, doing, we're doing it a little bit. Yeah, we, we got some. We've mentioned some of it in passing and then 
we're good. I think we're good. So I was back in Boston for grad school again. I went to Northeastern University for grad school. And uh, I didn't know what to expect. You know, it was four years removed from undergrad. I knew that it would be tough, but that's kind of when I retook those courses just to kind of get back in the little tiny swing of things academically. And so I got there and I was the only black person in my cohort, which is fine. Not fine, but you know, I'm used to that and it doesn't really intimidate me much at all. But I got there and I'm the type of person that's like usually very social, very much extrovert. And I have no issues kind of like trying to establish those relationships or just like talk to people, whether it be professors or students or whatever. So once I got to grad school, it was mostly just like that academic brain anxiety barrier that I had to cross. Like, what is it going to be like? What are the expectations going to be like? For me, you know, the anxiety was hard to get over at first. Like my first neuro quiz, oh my gosh, I cried in class after we got it back or after I I took it, like while I was taking it, I was crying. (laughs) And um, after the class, you know, my professor like set me aside and was like, are you okay? Like, you can't leave here until you're okay, you know? Um, But it was like those kinds of things that I appreciated, you know? And because I feel like I'm, I'm such an open book and I just try to be so vulnerable. I think that's part of my neurodivergence as well. I kind of just like, do that at baseline so that other people will do the same to me. Um, And so I, especially on my Instagram, like the amount of times people have seen me cry on my Instagram during grad school was probably like upwards of 10, but you know, I just, it was, (laughs) it, yeah, yeah. So I was always just like that person that was just telling people how it was, you know, if you ask me how I'm doing, I'm going to answer you honestly. And Grad school went pretty okay. You know, um, being the only black person in my cohort wasn't anything that really, like I said, intimidated me much, but I did see the differences, like you mentioned, when it came to like having clinical experience and knowing how to write clinically or knowing how to speak to clients or parents, like people that came without that knowledge, they were like, wait, I'm so nervous. Or like, wait, what do I do? Like, you know, and that was something that if you do have that clinical experience or you do have that work experience, then you kind of have that leg up um, when it comes to even just like talking to your professors or, you know, discussing concerns or writing a soap note, you know, it may not take you two hours. It might take you like, you know, because of course it had to be like two pages long, the soap note. So it might take you like 30 minutes, you know, (laughs) but Okay, I just gotta say, but why? Okay, but why? Why? Why do we it's have taking to have- me five minutes now? <laughs> no, no. In the real world, no. Do you see me? I'm clapping my hands because I'm pissy about this. No insurance mm-hmm. company wants to see 14 goals, and no physician wants to see 14 goals. Also, no. you can't cover that in three months. So, no. Prioritize. Make it in real- 30 minutes a session. Yes. And then we shouldn't, I don't think as a clinical supervisor, I should be asking my students to write a three page, like soap note, or like, I need it short, sweet, consolidated. I need to know that you can capture the information in a brief, brief synopsis. Mm -hmm. And if I want to see what your skill set is, like, then write that. Tell me, like, write, like, notes on the side, but not Mm -hmm. for what I'm submitting to the insurance. You see the difference? Mm -hmm. Or just, like, have more time one-on-one to have those discussions so that, you know, because, again, it might need some additional, like, 
yes, elaborating, or you yes. know, they might not be able to, you know, you, so you can talk it out in person, like dedicating that time to truly test or, you know, examine their knowledge face to face versus just like a 10 page soap note every week. That's yes. But like, also that's not realistic. And I want to set the next generation up for functionality. Like this mm-hmm. is, this is what a functional soap note is going to look like. And mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I, I get you. very strongly about that, but continue. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And so grad school. So my biggest thing that I wanted to prepare myself for in grad school was like setting myself up with resources. So that's like one of the big things that I tell people. So even before I got to grad school, I was looking things up like I was looking up in Basla. So that's the next. The National Black Association for Speech Language and Hearing. I was looking up SISTAs, so Sisters in Speech Therapy and Audiology. I was looking up ASHA resources. I was looking up all the things. And I was like, all right, let me get involved. Even if it was just like my tiny student membership, you know, I was like, I know this exists. It's here. And let me follow what they're doing. Let me do whatever. So my first year, um, my school actually sponsored me to go to Mbosla. And um, so I got to go and he was here in Charlotte, funny enough. Um, and so that was super great because like, as I mentioned before, I wanted that HBCU experience. So I wanted to go to a historically black college or university for grad school, but it just didn't happen. Um, but also just being like, I, like many of us are just the only person or one of the few over and over and over again, you know, there's just such, such a level of comfort. Like, of course I'm comfortable. Me personally, I'm comfortable in these spaces. Usually it's not really something that's internally discomforting. Um, but I wanted to have that space for once where I could go and be with people that looked like me that were experiencing this also that were going through grad school that maybe didn't have the resources or didn't have the knowledge or, you know, and they still made it through or they were making it through. Um, especially because like once I started my Instagram, I was making so many connections with people and I was like, I just want to keep connecting with people, whether it be, you know, just like, hey, I'll see you this conference and never see you again. Or, you know, I make a new friend. And that's like one of the big things I love. I love conferences. I love social events. I was like, I want to go. So that was a really nice experience to go to. Um, And I also went to ASHA when it was in Boston that year, too. So um, I served as the our like coordinate our president for our Nisla chapter. So it's like Nusla at Northeastern. Um, so that was another experience again, where I found myself to be like, you know, out here offering to volunteer, offering to help in the department, you know, doing okay academically. Of course, I may not have been the smartest, but I was doing okay. I had good connections with the teachers. I had good placements, you know, so, and that was because I intentionally did that because I wanted to set myself up for success. I wanted to put my name out there so that they kept me in consideration for these, these placements. Right. So from the beginning, I was like, I want this specific placement. So I'm going to put my name in there and I'm going to connect with this professor and I'm going to try to do my best (laughs) academically so that, you know, they can consider me, but it takes those like little things and that people don't necessarily know that right off the bat, or they don't, maybe have the confidence to, or they don't just have the natural disposition to do so. But for me, that was something that, you know, my mom kind of instilled in me and it's just part of my personality. So if you don't have that personality or you're seen as standoffish or you're, you know, judged as X, Y, Z, 
partially because of maybe your racial or ethnic background, because you're kind of othered, then, you know, sometimes that can be, can put you at a disadvantage. And I feel like that happens a lot with students where they're just, you know, judged as being, you know, maybe having an attitude or just being too quiet or too quiet, quote unquote, or, you know, not being as social or as professional. And unfortunately, I feel like it happens a lot where they miss out on opportunities because of judgments that maybe people place on them, which is not fair. Um, Because if you're not out here talking to every and everybody like I am and putting your name in the hat from the beginning, then, you know, maybe that doesn't work out in your favor. So I feel like there are lots of barriers that have come up that I've thought of at least, you know, there's palatable blackness. So that's what I consider myself to be because, you know, there's, I feel like, I feel like there's that, um, not the token black person because that's a little bit different, right? But, you know, if you speak a certain way, if you hold yourself if you carry yourself a certain way, if you don't cause any issues, you know, if you, then you are given more opportunities, you are given more space versus, you know, if you um, are perceived to have an attitude or you need, you're perceived to be standoffish or you fight back against certain things and you advocate for yourself or you advocate for other students or you have a certain dialect or you're not as social or professional as they would like you to be, you know, then you're judged and perceived to be a certain way. Um, So I feel like there's definitely lots of levels of privilege and just like your natural disposition and the way you speak and things like that on top of financial and, you know, academic literacy and all those things that have come up. But that was my experience in grad school. It actually went really well. I had a, a really great group of friends too. And I like, it was a really good experience, but definitely like little microaggressions that I would experience, you know, about my hair or about my nails or about, you know, anything that I said, you know, if I said something in AAE, you know, someone might comment on it and be like, really? And I was like, yes, you know, like things like that, that would come up and not that it affected me super internally or, or deeply, but it's, it's there and it's acknowledged internally, you know, like I know what's happening in the moment and it's definitely like, Hmm, I see what's, what's happening here that it affected me greatly to impact my performance in grad school. No, but that's not the case for everybody. There are definitely people where it impacts them greatly and, you know, it impacts their grades, it impacts their mental health and, you know, what is that doing to, to retain our students and help them succeed? Because I know so many people who have gone through grad school who are of marginalized communities who have left the field, you know, because of other mental health issues or burnout or just realizing that this isn't for them. And I wonder if, you know, having better support or if the field as a whole were less burnout-y right now, I guess, at the time, or at the time, I wonder if things would have changed. I wonder if, I don't know, something would have made a difference, you know? Because so many people are leaving to tech, too. That's, like, a big thing. Both people that I know that, that left, left to tech fields. And I was like, oh, well, you know? But, so, yeah, that was my experience. It was actually a really good one. I enjoyed it a lot. 
But I know that that's not the case for everybody, especially if you're at a PWI. I did my grad program online. So I had a very different, yeah, back in the day, dude, I was like an original online person, but mine was very difficult just because I was married to my um, first husband and he was very violent. So I had a lot of domestic abuse going on at home, um, which is always, it kind of takes people away because when they see me, they don't anticipate me having a domestic abuse situation. I'm like, no, I'm alive because I took the bullets out of a gun one night and um, hid all of the bullets. So it was, oh, it, if I smell cheap cologne, it puts me right back in. I mean, right. There's a certain whiff. I'm like, oh yes. And I, I think on that note, it's, um, I always open up with that with the students because we don't know what's going on in the students' personal lives and we, um, and mental health matters and it matters more than what, um, people are comfortable acknowledging. And that is, um, there is so much ageism within that because, I mean, I watch, I watch my mother-in-law struggle with hers, to be frank. And she refuses to go get help because that's how she was raised. Women of her, of her stature, they just, you, you handled it, right? And then there's two generations later or however many generations in between. And I'm like, no, this, we, we have to lead by example. We have to hold these conversations and create safe spaces so that our colleagues and the students that are mentoring, the students that were inspiring, they, they know that honestly, I feel like if we're not in a good space, then we're not going to be able to adequately serve those that we're called to treat. Right. And and that's much less. How can you do your day to day? How can you support yourself? Right. But um, I, I went through that with privilege and support. And when I finally came forward to my family and left and got out, it was um, in my CF. I think I was like two months into my CF when I got out. Um, which made for one heck of a CF ride. Um, not to mention that my um, clinical fellow mentor showed up, would ask me to purchase Mary Kay and then sign off all my documents. So I bought a lot of Mary Kay. I cannot make it up. Oh <laughs> not Mary Kay. Mary Kay. And she did not drive a pink Cadillac. I'm just saying. Oh, my okay, for those of you that don't know how Mary Kay works, it's a, uh, you have to sell so much product and Mary Kay gives you a pink Cadillac, but like whatever. Um, anyhow, oh my gosh, there is wearing the hats that I have worn. I have had to remove students' names from clinical applications because I knew that if their names were on the document when I submitted for rotations, I knew they wouldn't even be selected for an interview. And why was that? What because what made you think that? Um, because I knew the supervisors, not the clinical supervisors, but their supervisors that would see the first round of rotations. 
and we had to have conversations because there was inherent racism. I'll call it what it was. It was, it was, Mm -hmm. it was racism. And as that generation has retired and moved out, Mm -hmm. it has improved. Also as an external clinical supervisor, I've had to remove practicum sites because of racism. Mm. And, and that's what it takes, though, but because that, how many people are not doing that and then just letting them continue? And mm, I, murder mad, did you see it? It's like mm-hmm. right there. It gets hot. Yeah. And then you're like, squish it, Michelle, squish it. But like, have you, see, have you ever seen Teen Titans Go? I promise this is relevant. I have I'm, not. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You need Teen Titans Go. I think I'm moving, right? Like mysterious. Right. But mm-hmm. my boys say um, um, Starfire because she's really happy like all the time until she shoots lasers out of her eyes. And I'm like, mm. you're right. I am Starfire. But like, I don't know. Raven has a cool cloak and she can fly. But like, whatever. Anyhow. So, yeah. But now I'm singing the song in my head. <laughs> I don't have ADHD. Story of my life. Story <laughs> of my life. <laughs> but <laughs> we have to do that. We have to go through. I have removed entire healthcare systems, small healthcare systems from mm. the mix because like, I don't, I don't want to like go mama mode for my students, but like we have no. to protect them. And, you do. Yeah. And, and when the sites come back and say, how come we don't have any students? Then we have to diplomatically explain the last several students that attended practicum sites there or the last student that attended, there were concerns and we've, we've discussed them and you have to be brave enough to hold the conversation with mm-hmm. that individual. Um, I mean, hell, I've removed them in the middle of their site to find other sites because that's what's safe. Because mm-hmm. I'm responsible for ensuring that these students have a healthy and also joyful experience, right? Right. Like, and like, you can't learn when you're dysregulated or in flight, fight or flight mode. Like, yes. That's not no. conducive to learning at all. And microaggressions will trigger fight or flight or fawn. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the mm-hmm. other one? The, the, yeah. There, I think there are four, right? Three or four? Yes. Four yeah, different ways. Flight. Fawn, freeze. Fawn and freeze, yes. Yes. But like, so what do we do? Well, we we learn better. We do better. We acknowledge when we've screwed up. I mean, God knows. I look back on my, and I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Why did I think that? That's that. But I've had to grow and have conversations. Also, Marnie Martin, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> but like, this is, this is, this is how we make it better and we pay it forward. Somebody, I, I went to Embasla this year. Um, I know, I'm so jealous. <laughs> so much fun. I wanted to go so badly. We're in Raleigh. It's in Raleigh. I joined. I know. I know. Right down the I told my boss. I told my boss. I was like, we're going. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to get, um, Speech Therapy PD had a booth there this year. Right, and, right, uh, yeah. Yes, Yumi, Yumi and Sumi were there. Also, oh my God, we found the greatest Thai restaurant. I am now convinced Yumi and Sumi are responsible for finding every restaurant we eat at wherever we go. Because like, I'm just like, what's the closest? I'm exhausted. And they're like, no, we're walking. This is what we're eating tonight. And I'm like, they're foodies. I'm good. But um, there was a lecture by two women and for... I, 
box of stuff is boxed because I have all of my speechology stuff in the corner to take to the new office. But um, Dr. Tova, I believe, was the first. It, she had she had a professor that was, and I'm so sorry, I don't remember their names. I will circle back to it. But they were talking about how they created um, uh, small groups. And it wasn't an Imbasla chapter, but you can have an Imbasla chapter, like like a Nishla chapter. You can have an Imbasla chapter. I learned that one from Dr. Kia, but um, Dr. Tova was talking about how they created just a a BIPOC group led by, excuse me, the BIPOC professors and created a safe space to support. And she was like, this is really critical at PWIs. And they shared all of this intensive research. And I had to raise my hand because we, the universities that I have worked at, we might have only had one or two black students or, and so how do we, or maybe how do we do that? Or how do we go about it if we don't have um, a, a black faculty member and which is a very whole nother conversation, but one of the other faculty members in the audience um, raised their hand and said what they did was they opened up a group, not just for the speech pathology department, but to the entire health science department. Right. That's what I would say. Or to both undergrad and grad students. And they're there. Yeah. then you also have that level of mentorship that's being yeah. passed down. Um, but yeah, then there's like that whole issue, right? And there's, <laughs> let's not even get into HBCUs where the cohorts are entirely white because that <laughs> happens as well Yes, at the grad level. And, but no, that's an issue. Like I mentioned, you know, and then you, I, I don't think I have not had a black teacher ever in my life ever. And it's like to have that is such like a privilege and honor. Like I can only imagine having that you know, and for students to not even have that and to not even have another person in their cohort where they can feel some sort of camaraderie based off of, you know, race or language or ethnicity or whatever, like that's so difficult. And I feel like having those groups, because they have sisters groups and they have Imbasla groups, and then they have like, you can have like regional Imbasla groups as well. But that's such a great resource for students. And just like a, such a, like you mentioned, such a safe space where they can, especially if they have that faculty member to share that with, where they can voice their concerns in a safe space and know that there won't be any retribution or consequences that will affect them professionally or academically. Cause that happens, you know, students, even at the grad level are penalized unfairly you know, randomly because of saying something or mentioning something or advocating for themselves, like I said. But yeah, that's so great that you found out about that because being able to facilitate that at any level, I think is such a great idea. You said penalize and you triggered a thought. Um, Dr. Norman gave me some of the best advice. So not everybody is going to be full-time faculty, right? Like it's just, it's not going, it's not going to happen. But a lot of us have the joy of being like adjunct and I've done adjunct work and that's amazing. And one of the recommendations she gave um, to support students, especially students that don't have the academic literacy 
was to make the most detailed syllabus you can come up with. Just like you were talking about, like, no, don't tell me, be broad. Give me, like, specifics. Instructions, yeah. And and I internally have to balance that in my brain with, I like the choose-your-own-adventure, right? So I always love those books. So one of my assignments was, um, okay, so I want you to pick a pediatric feeding disorders myth and then bust it and then ex- and laid out my points, but I didn't, I only listed a couple, but I didn't list the specific myths. And I had several students really struggle with picking a myth. And I'm like, but to me, like, that's your final assignment. Like we've talked about this all semester. And I was like, oh no, this is a learning opportunity. Like if I saw my students struggling with how to select and how to format, then I need to be very more specific in the next iteration of the syllabus. Um, and, and it's, but that's part of being a lifelong learner is structuring down to, and if you make sure your how your grading is very explicit, then it will help eliminate bias. Mm-hmm. But we got bias be. can come everywhere, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Even like you mentioned, like it can happen. As you create a syllabus because you assume X, Y, Z, you know? Yes. I feel like people underestimate how much bias is ingrained in literally everything we do. We do. Like, I don't think people understand. Like, it comes down even to that or the way that you word certain things, you know? I I am the type, I used to be mad at this type of communication, but then I realized that I also do it. So I was like, okay. Like, I give the background information to everything and I will say things one, two, three times within the same monologue because I want to make sure that people understand what I'm saying. Um, and that even that's just like, you know, when people talk to you and sometimes they have this assumption that you have background information or that you're under, you're going to understand what they're saying. It's like, it's just everywhere. But that's something I experienced as well. Even in undergrad. So in undergrad and in grad school. So my name is very, well, Right now, my name is very kind of flat. There's not really much racial or ethnic indication of what I am. But in undergrad, people didn't know that I was fully Dominican until they heard me speak Spanish. Like one person didn't know I spoke Spanish or that I was Dominican until like two years into to undergrad <laughs> when they heard me speaking on the phone with my mom. <laughs> and then same thing in grad school, like some people didn't know that I was Hispanic either, but they make this assumption, right? Or once they found out, then it kind of like, they're like, oh, so you're not, you're not really black. You know, there's that kind of, you know, thought process for some people or like it lessens or it invalidates somehow, you know, my experience, which I understand. There's lots of, there's, that's a whole other conversation that I'm sure you might've had with Jackie at some point, but, um, you know, and her and I talk about it. We've given presentations on this too, about the nuances about race in Latin America. But yeah, I feel like, like you said, being a lifelong learner and being open to understanding your biases is really, really important. And that's just like the baseline of what people should try to strive for, you know? Yes. Okay. 
I know we're running out of time. I know. <laughs> okay, so one can can you come back? And yes. um, let's let's can you and Jackie come back on because I feel like you oh. and Aaron and I, the four of us, one we have yeah, to make the be... line, but like yes, yes, let's hope. But I feel like our Jackie and my years are like finally. I know Jackie's year is like you know winding down. She had lots of things going on, so hopefully yes. that would be so like, fun. I'm going to text her right now. Like Michelle says, we should do it together. That would be so fun, especially with Erin because I miss yeah. her today. Uh, it was so sad, but yeah, she got a promotion, so she had to go in today. But I'm so proud of her. Like. I'm, there's ten years between the two of us, so I'm like old enough to be like her big sister, and like not mm-hmm. old enough to be your mom, and like yeah, like everybody needs a friend that's ten years older to tell you about the menopause and the perimenopause mm. and the laffy tappy nipples when you're done breastfeeding. <laughs> but like, Don't tell me this, please. <laughs> oh, it's I'll, terrible. I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet now. They're like, wait, no, yeah. Michelle, we do want to know about that. No, we'll do a whole no. other episode on that. We'll but, do that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I got my CBS. Did you really? Yes. So now I'm trying to get into some lactation. I'm trying to find opportunities for that. Like to, I know that there's a leche leak here, and then there's a couple other things. So yeah, hopefully I can get involved in that. Awesome. But, Folks, if you're listening and you're an SLP and you have your CLCs, advice, unsolicited advice, reach out to the pediatricians because we Mm. are uniquely equipped at working with um, children that have um, genetic conditions, um, perinatal CBAs. We're we're really equipped at reaching those mommies that Mm. are wanting, even if they can't breastfeed, we can still encourage chest feeding so they Mm -hmm. can encourage that. Oh, my heart. Yeah, if that's what they want. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Mm. This was lovely. Okay, wait. Before we it go, if somebody has mad money or um, a little bit of love money lying around at the end of the month, oh. do you have a, a place you would like for them to donate to? Yes. Um, so one, I would look into your local or your nearest or your alma mater's um, speech program because I'm sure that they can always take scholarship money. Um and then in Basla, um, any BIPOC marginalized SLP that you can think of. There are so many people, but I won't name drop just to not leave anybody out. Um, Sistas, um, any other mentorship program. So BEAM is a bilingual empowerment um, through allied mentorship program. I know that one of my other peers has heart to heart mentorship program. Um yeah, I feel like any of those things. And if you are so inclined, I am a, a presenter and contributor for credit. But, you know, if you do want to do that work and invest your money and support people, credit has amazing courses. I took one last year. Last year? I don't remember if it was last year or the year before. But, yeah, and they offer CEUs. Um, but, yeah, all of those things are really great to, to support And if it's just like buying somebody a SIG, like one of my mentors did that for me. And I was like, wow, this was really great. You know, like just like pay for their SIG, especially if they're in grad school, it's like $15, you know, buy them more than one SIG or like pay for, you know, I've had people offer to pay for conferences for me. And I'm just like, what? Like I'm about to start crying thinking about it. But like those little things are like paying for their, paying for their, um, whatchamacallit or paying for their NISLA membership or something, you know, 
buying them a coffee, like think of anybody who you've learned from or who you'd love to support or who you want to learn more from. And then just like little gestures like that go such a long way. And like, I remember when people do that, you know, I remember, and it means so much when people make those little gestures of kindness. So even if it's just buying somebody a sake, cash apping them or Venmoing them, like, hey, here's your sake, you know, especially new grad students, give them all the love. Folks, I am on the board of trustees for the Virginia Communication Disorder Foundation. So donate there to support a student within Virginia and near and dear to my heart, the Sharonda Coleman Memorial Scholarship um, in South Carolina, which supports a, uh, a student from uh, a minority background in South Carolina that wants to be a speech pathologist. So That's awesome. Please donate there. Yes. yes. Okay. Everybody, find us on the land of the Insta, First Bite Podcast, and the Blacky Speechy. Am I right? The Black, black Speechy, yes. I said Blacky Speechy, the Black Speechy. <laughs> I know. I love spoonerisms. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Everybody, thank you. Thank you. Amanda, hold tight. This was awesome. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.